Welcome back to Devs Dive episode 33. As always, I'm your host, Nighthawk. Today, my returning guest is Adam Cohen, aka Riot Afic, QA manager on the game analysis team at Riot Games. I want to thank Adam for coming back on the show after two years of a long hiatus. Two years, almost exactly. Almost exactly, yeah. I was looking at our, our DMs today, and, and the last DM I sent to Adam was, hey, Adam, ready to come on the show on uh, November 24th, 2020. So that was a fun trip down memory lane. So since we've already had Adam on the show and we've talked pretty extensively about how he got into his career game dev and how that really sort of transpired, I figured instead of rehashing old ground, we would dedicate this episode into more talking about his current role and, and what that really means. Because there's a lot of, uh, I hesitate to say misinformation, but maybe misconceptions about what the gameplay analysis team does. But if you are interested in that conversation, you can go back and listen to, I think it was episode 24 uh, I'll have it linked down in the description if you're watching this not live, but uh, whichever episode has uh, Adam on it, I'm sure you can find it. Um, and that has a great discussion on how he got into game dev, what his career path was, education, and stuff like that. But, uh, so to start out the episode and just give a quick overview, why don't you tell me a little bit about what the gameplay analysis team actually does and what a manager on the team's job is. Uh, the quick answer to what a game analysis team does is, I guess, the elevator pitch is uh, you think about growing up, you wanted to play games and you wanted to just get paid to do that. Uh, you see, you see all the people who work on them in the credits go, hey, I want to be one of those people and just talk about games. Quick version of it is that is kind of what we do. Uh, Basically, we test in-dev content, we provide qualitative feedback, we analyze how we think it's going to affect meta, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, a lot of what we do is talking with designers and working with other uh, just other teams that create content that goes into the game. That's a great uh, overview. So why don't we talk a little bit about some changes that have happened in your life and in your role in the last two years, just in case anyone is watching from the last episode. Uh, so from my life, I guess one of the biggest changes is I'm now a dad. Uh, that has a bit of a time commitment associated with it, but I absolutely love it. Um, the team has continued to grow. We work on more projects now. And overall, uh, things have been going pretty darn well. Yeah, and you're seeing to be going to be a dad times two. A 2x dad, yeah. 2x yeah, dad. I, almost can, uh, I can almost have my own 5v5 team soon. <laughs> That's the goal. If, if League is still yeah. going on in yeah. 10 League or so years. League is still years. going on in, yeah, exactly. So if you're actually interested in some of this, I know you haven't been streaming recently, I'm sure, because of all the stuff going on oh, in your I, life. Yeah, holidays. I've been playing God of War lately as well. Um <laughs> Yeah, goal. I just got back to uh, California. Oh, really? I didn't know you were out of town. Yeah. Well, welcome Traveled back. to Massachusetts, where I'm from. So saw my family, brought the little one. Good times. Good times. Yeah, but if uh, eventually when Adam does start streaming, um, he does amazing streams where he plays League of Legends, but also dedicates pretty much the entirety of the stream to answering questions in chat about what Riot's philosophy is for League, why balanced decisions are made, and has incredible patience for some of the questions that I've seen. So if you want to check that out, check him out at twitch.tv slash actually That's what it is, right? Twitch.tv slash actually Um, And I'll have that link down in the description as well for anyone who's interested. Uh, amazing stream content, just really chill vibes, nothing 
too serious going on and usually pretty fun. So go ahead and check that out when you get the chance. All right. So let's get into the nitty gritty on GAT, which is an uh, acronym for a gameplay analysis team, which we'll probably be using a lot because gameplay analysis team is a mouthful. Um, I know that you, I, I believe this is true. The gameplay analysis team used to only support League of Legends, but I know that now you're expanding to support TFT as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it's something we've wanted to do for a while. I'm actually wearing a TFT shirt right now. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Um, as for working with them on set one, um, it's it's something we've known that is value we can add, but for a bunch of reasons that are very complex and a lot of intertangled pieces to them, uh, we weren't able to fully staff up a team to help. Um, there is also a separate game analysis team for Valorant uh, that I work with uh, individuals over there every once in a while. Um, but yeah, it is something we're finally, we've gotten the buy-in, we've demonstrated the value, and we are starting to spin up testing. So set eight is actually uh, on PBE right now. We did very, very limited assistance there, and uh, we have committed to working on future sets with them. So that's exciting. And I'm sure that as more Riot games come out, there will be some more uh, thoughts and stuff about expanding the gameplay and access team to hopefully cover those as well to keep things from those fragmenting. Those conversations have happened in some capacity, yes. <laughs> All hush-hush, we can't talk about it too much. <laughs> I'm a bit biased, but uh, I, I believe there is value in it. I would think so. I, I, it it yeah. makes sense to me as an outsider to, to have sort of that kind of thing in one thing because then you can have people work collaboratively instead of having to work cross-team, which mm-hmm. even at a company like Riot, that can end up putting some car or some wrenches in the cogs. Absolutely. Yeah. So this probably is one of the greatest misconceptions about the gameplay analysis team GAT. Um, and I wanted to cover it early just in case anyone was tuning in early and just wanted this answer. Where does GAT, why is GAT different from the balance team and where do they, where they differ? So the balance team is the team that implements the changes, comes up with what the changes should be. We provide support and information. One of the key differences in outputs is, generally speaking, um, the individuals on the, or specifically the designers on the balance team, have a broader vision of what the game should be. So they have like overarching goals and all this extra context that goes into holistically what they want League of Legends to be, and they put in a change. Uh, and then we will look at that change with our own, um, you know, philosophies, which are going to be similar, but still different, and think, what will this actually do to the game? Uh, so a lot of what we do is provide information to better support and help help the balance team, uh, Summoner's Rift team, understand, are their changes hitting their goals? And are their goals good in the first place that's kind of like the difference of what we do so would you say that the the gat team doesn't really have like direct input on what changes are made or is more of a providing the tools for the balance for the summoners rift team to make those decisions a lot of the time we don't sometimes we do it isn't so black and white and so like hard line in the sand or anything like that uh we do there are times where you know they'll ask for suggestions or we'll like, hey, this worked for so-and-so, maybe it can also work here. Or we've done work with, like, you know, we're trying to change the pro skew of a champion. We can do, in the past, this is the type of work that has worked. 
um, that has been effective in reducing pro-skew. Uh, so the quick answer is we generally don't, but there are exceptions. Awesome. So what does the day-to-day -day life on GAT look like? What, what is your... And you can answer this from the managed perspective and also from the, the uh, average team member's perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll start with the team as a whole and what individuals on the team generally experience. Uh, morning, we have our stand-up where we update priorities for different, different pieces of content uh, in the day. We go over what we're going to be focusing on in that day. Uh, then we come up with how we want to uh, fill our playtest slots for the day. We generally run three a day, um, and you know we have different types of them. Not all content is ready for the same playtest. So, for example, uh, a champion that is releasing in a month and is like we're interested in like understanding how well tuned it is and very specific scenarios. Uh, that is very very different type of test from a champion who has one working ability and three copy pasted from another champion. We're just trying to get like very broad understanding of things. So we have different types of tests. We use morning time to figure out um, how we're going to allocate our day. Uh, and then in the morning, we have a test. In the early afternoon, we have another test. We have some, uh, I guess, more open hours in the early afternoon after the first afternoon test. So from like 2.30 to 5.00. Um, where we'll have meetings, we'll discuss stuff, we'll do some analysis on various gameplay, look at replays, talk to designers, all of that type of stuff. And then in the evening, we'll have another test. Um, all of these tests involve, uh, you know, looking over replays and talking through some of the content and having discussions within the team. So it's not just play the game, but we're done, and then send it off. So that's typically what a day is. Uh, it involves talking to designers, talking to each other, looking through replays, playing a few games to uh, generate some of the feedback and going through it in that lens. Um, my day sometimes looks like that. Uh, I often have more meetings in the afternoon and sometimes can't make some of the play tests to deal with other commitments. Uh, a lot of my job is to make sure the team and the individual, specifically the individuals on the team are unblocked, able to, um, you know, generate the value they need to do and help their career growth. Uh, first and foremost, I am, uh, what I want to accomplish is make sure the individuals on the team are constantly growing, constantly challenging themselves. You know, doing a good job comes along with that, but it's not so micromanaging that that's what my main concern is. Um, it really is making sure that the systems are in place to ensure that they can continue to grow and increase their output and improve as individuals. And the common thread between the people I've interviewed on this show and the people I've talked to in game dev is it generally seems like the higher up you get on the chain of command, the more of your day is spent in meetings. And I think that that is usually said in a, in a rueful tone um, because sometimes you lose a little bit of the magic that made that role fun. But somebody's got to be in those meetings. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely not as much fun per se. But turns out I really like League of Legends, so it's going to be tough to top filling out those games. But uh, you know, it's a different different type of fun. I still love what I do. Yeah, and and that's something that um, I was talking to Fox about a little bit on his stream, where he says not a lot of people can play League of Legends for work for three to four hours a day and then come home and spam solo queue games, especially on stream. So I think that's something that a lot of people take for granted, where they're like. 
man, a lot of these riders don't want to play league in their spare time when they don't realize that, at least on your team, they're playing it pretty yeah. intensely for, for yeah. multiple days every week. It is, uh, it is definitely important to have, uh, you know, a separation between work-life balance. Uh, some people need that downtime to, hey, you know, for these next few hours, I'd like to turn my brain off and not think about league. Um, I just think about league in different ways where sometimes it's playing to win, sometimes it's playing to get value, sometimes it's just competing because that's what I like doing. Uh, and sometimes it's just interacting with stream, which is why I do that as well. So it has similarities, but I try and keep it different. And it does still, you know, it it gets me that mental recharge that I would expect anyone to get in their downtime. So uh, it fortunately has not changed in the last nine and a half years. I still love the game. That's Despite that is yeah. the magic of of games like League. I don't think. I mean, I've been playing League for for maybe a little less than you, about nine years now. Closer, oh, actually, actually I worked it right. I mean, I've been playing since beta. That's like thirteen years at this point. Oh, I, okay. I I didn't even yeah. register that it's been that long. I think I started yeah. in season one or two, so a little yeah, ten yeah, years. You're ten ish <laughs> up there. Man, I'm old. Um, and it, it's it's. It speaks to the the magic of the game, and there's a lot of outspoken people with outspoken opinions about League of Legends that uh, can go either way. But I think the fact that it's remained the most, or at least one of the most popular games ever during this whole time, it, it really speaks to to the job that you guys do at the gameplay analysis team. And even as much as they get memed on, the Summoners Rift team, the balance team, and the design team, and the champion team, so. I wanted to give some gratitude towards them for continuing to keep this game fresh and and very, very, very popular while balancing a lot of different plates. Yeah, it's a, definitely an interesting problem to keep a game like revitalized. And then, you know, most recently, I'm just going to quickly talk about the jungle changes. You'll see some jungler saying, Riot's ruining the jungle. This role is too easy. And I was like, you know what else would ruin the jungle? Having no one queue up for it, and then no one can get in games, and then League starts to die, and then, you know, five years from now, it's no more because no one wants to play this. Regardless, sometimes you need to look at the bigger picture than how does this solely affect me and what exactly I want to do. Uh, and there are longer, longer-term implications. Yeah, and we can talk a little bit more about preseason <laughs> later in the thing. Yes. I have some notes about yes. that. Um, I'd love to get into more of that because that sounds fun. But actually, I, I promised my friend I would ask this question. He, he, when he found out I was interviewing you, he said he was really interested in this. So I, I, I wanted to include this. Um, do you think that the, all the work that goes into analyzing the game and playing the game daily um, translates into a higher skill level of player on average for the, the gameplay analysis team member? Uh, depends on the individual. I think the people who are most you know, deeply ingrained in the game uh, it tends to be more difficult to maintain that like mechanical skill. So spending that much time doing things that isn't honing your mechanical skill can be detrimental. Uh, for someone like myself, absolutely. <laughs> uh, my my mechanics, I mean, you've seen me play. Uh, I, I tend to gravitate towards the run at you fast champions. And I like to outthink the enemy because I know I'm not going to outclick the enemy. Uh, so I think for me, understanding the game at a higher level absolutely has helped me be i guess better in terms of my individual performance 
And obviously this changes per, I mean, it changes for so many variables per champion, per role, per mm-hmm. individual player. But just on average, how much do you think a game like League has with like a skill difference between somebody who knows a lot with with intense game knowledge and somebody who's intensely mechanically skilled like what do you think the ratio between those two things are in terms of your your individual player skill yeah my individual player skill i think my mechanics are like passable most of the time i can make the hype plays but more than anything i'm inconsistent with it so that's going to hold me back to some extent Uh, i think my game knowledge is generally pretty good when I make mistakes, it is often because I play greedy, um, and that's its own problem. And I think, you know, overall, in terms of measuring skill, this might be a bit sidetracked, but in terms of measuring skill for an individual, you can get, you can have many different shapes of players at different elos. So, like, you know, in low diamonds, you can get to low diamond by not macroing at all. You can just be mechanically gifted. You can solo kill your lane opponent many times and just split push all game and not think about anything and then get picked in the sideline, whatever. But you're better than the enemy. So, you know, you can get to diamond with knowing nothing about macro. Um, similarly, I have someone like myself who I don't, I would never try and solo kill someone because I know better. Um, but I know where I'm supposed to be on the map. I know how to set a vision. I know which objectives to prioritize. And then I'm decent at herding sheep, so I can sometimes coerce my teammates into doing the uh, macro correct play and, you know, get to diamond in that sense. Um, Interestingly enough, I know uh, Riot um, Froxon, who is on Summer's Rift team, recently went to Korea a bit and played at a higher level than his rank should be. Um, And the most interesting thing, one of his interesting takeaways was the players are mechanical gods. They play on zero ping. They've really pushed that to the limit. And they will outplay the hell out of you. Uh, but their macro is awful. And this is like high diamond in Korea solo queue. It's like, it's mind-blowingly awful. So to answer your question, you can get pretty far in the game by being mechanically gifted. And that's something that fascinates me about League of Legends, that you can have somebody with almost no game knowledge or very little game knowledge outside of their role or outside of their champion and just have such intense skill on that champion on champions like Zed or Riven or um, certain ADCs like maybe Ezreal, Ophelia, Samira, um, these high skill cap champions uh, and still achieve high ranks, at least in solo queue. Obviously that dynamic breaks down differently when you're playing competitively. Um, But then you also have, you have a chance for people with, a really good game knowledge and really good macro to bridge that gap and not just get solo stomped in every single game, which I think lends a lot of value. And I think that speaks a lot to the overall arching design of the game and its systems that that's able to be done because I don't, I mean, I haven't played many other MOBAs, so I can't speak to them, but outside of the MOBA genre, I don't really think other games have that level of, of, strategy over mechanics um at least when i think of games like fps's or or similar games yeah it's uh it's definitely interesting that there really is such a broad skill test on so many different axes and depending on how you do in each of those tests you can get wildly you can have wildly different shaped players who overall it averages out to about the same skill level which is kind of cool in a lot of ways it is really and cool. part of that is what what keeps keeps league so enticing for so long is 
you can be really good at the game and be like, oh, I'm so good. But there's still so much more to learn. And all of that stuff you can learn will improve your game in different ways. So uh, improving isn't like, oh, I just need a last hit better. Oh, or I just need to rotate, be in the right lane more often. It's it's a little of everything. And uh, that's that's always been exciting for me. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. So getting back a little bit on track towards uh, GAT, and this is a question that I wanted to input because I think this really gets spread around a lot, um, especially in some of the more toxic uh, areas of the community. How does the team combat personal bias when providing data or making changes or, or uh, playing the game? And how do they... That's a fun they, one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, in the early days, honestly, we didn't. Um, a lot of it is, this is my thought. Um, I am higher rated player. You should probably like take it with a grain of salt. Um, but you know, these are my takes. Um, you know, different people will have different success in that. Way back in the day, when I was the first member of the team, I tended to be pretty good about that. So I was able to constantly leverage my past success to get by and like, hey, maybe we should listen to this Adam guy. Um, now we're much more, our process is much more refined. A lot of what we do is just kind of um, analyze scenarios. So there are a lot, to, contrary to popular belief of the player community and at times, there are a lot of very intelligent, logical, really great people um, who are designing content on League of Legends. If I show them a clip of a play, given the context of a game, I don't need to say anything. I can just provide this information, this raw footage of uh, a 1v1 or a gank or whatever, and say, hey, what are your thoughts on this? There's a very good chance they will draw the same conclusion that I do. Uh, so in that sense, there isn't bias. It's I'm showing, I'm providing you information that you can tangibly draw your own conclusions from. And then if our conclusions match up, great. If not, we'll talk through it, understand where the misalignment is, and then um, know where, have a much better understanding of where to go from there. And I wanted to cover this as well, because this point gets brought up quite a bit um, when addressing this. What does it actually mean to be uh, data informed versus data driven when you're making decisions like that? Uh, yes. So let's see. A quick example of that is, um, let's just talk about Yumi. Yumi's win rate is atrocious. By If you look solely at win rate, that champion should be buffed and needs to be buffed badly and all sorts of stuff. People who play against Yumi feel very strongly that the champion is kind of BS or really lame or does a bunch of things that are unfun, etc., etc. Uh Being data-driven would be like, hey, the data says this champion is weak, we need to buff it. Being data-informed is, hey, this champion is weak, let's understand what we can do to make the champion better. And then you realize that the real factor is frustration is through the roof, so our options are significantly limited. So we're data-informed. We know this champion is weak and needs some help, um, but a, a straight buff is not what's best for the game. And how did you... How long? Okay, so this is a little off topic. How long do you think League has really been looking for additional levers um, to balance champions that have low win rates or low low power ceilings, but still have intense uh, negative player perception? So, so champions like maybe Akali when she was uh, very very strong in terms of the crazy outplay potential, but still had a very bad win rate. Right. Uh, that's a tough one. So we've cared about 
levers for a long time now. Uh, the truth is sometimes they don't work as well as we would like. Um, and a lot of our testing is to kind of validate how effective is this lever. Um, you know, champions like Yumi and Zeri were instances where uh, the design of the champions kind of limited and we knew it was going to be risky that we might not have the levers. Uh, and sometimes it's worth taking those risks, actually. It often is. Um, I don't regret either of those champions, not even slightly. Um, so we've always had levers for, I don't know, let's just say seven plus years um, to varying extent. We're much more attuned to understanding the effectiveness of various levers and um, how to verify their functionality much earlier on in testing. That makes a lot of sense. Um, bouncing off that, this is actually a really good segue into our next question. So how do you personally and their team deal with intense negative player feedback while you're still trying to take player perception into account? So in other words, how do you dig through some of the garbage and find the gold in there that actually makes sense? Uh, that is going to be an infinitely difficult question for many reasons. Um, one of the quick answers is that the vocal minority is not often, or an important thing to note is the vocal minority is not always representative of everyone else. So this is the Reddit, the Twitter, influencers, whoever. Um, if they are all saying the same thing, that doesn't mean that the majority of players have the same thought. Um, so we do a lot of much broader surveying and stuff like that to get at some of that information. Um, you have to also think League of Legends is a global game. Uh, one of the interesting facts that I think has been brought up in some capacity in the past is uh, outside of Western regions, or sorry, outside of like NA and EU, um, Yumi isn't nearly as frustrating, isn't as much of an issue. Like the hate for Yumi is mostly NA and EU centric, um, just as a quick example. So while players can be infinitely frustrated or seemingly like this is overwhelmingly negative, that doesn't necessarily match again, the global perspective. And global is not only other regions, but also different. You have to consider in different MMR brackets, right? Uh, people saying like, I know in the most recent patch, we're nerfing Trundle. Like, Why are you nerfing Trundle? He isn't even strong. It's like, well, if you look at him in low elo, he absolutely is. So you have to think about the game in more than just your immediate bubble. Um, and that is incredibly difficult for a lot of people, especially people who um, perceive themselves to have like a deep understanding of the game, but they've only ever experienced it in one thin slice of like this region and this MMR and this role. You are very open to um, misassessing like broader trends. So going back to your question, um, you kind of have to know when it is okay to dig deep into comments and stuff like that and then when to look at more holistic approaches to getting at that information uh, but it is something that is very difficult to do just in general and i think i asked nick this question last week but i'd love to ask you this question as well um, what do you recommend to people in the community who are passionate who want to share their feedback how do you recommend that they share that in a way that would be valuable to your team and it would be something that you would be able to take into account uh so my biased answer is uh 
talk to me on stream. I love talking about league. I love taking what I hear and what I see. If I see good arguments, I, I can poke holes in arguments. No problem. That's trivial. If someone presents a legitimately good argument, I am happy to further discuss it. I think as far as like player communication goes, it's tough because whatever you do, you want to be scalable, right? Like I could come here and talk to you. Ultimately, that's not going to reach uh, the same number of people as if I were to, uh, you know, write up a um, quick gameplay thoughts or something along those lines. So there isn't an established like best practice. Talk to get get your opinion um, acted upon. But I will say that I am able to um, take good thoughts and convey those thoughts to various designers and have designers act on them. Um, so I am happy to at least shoulder some of that. If people have, if people are watching this right now, I am happy to uh, do my part in taking good ideas and moving them forward or poking holes in them until they're no longer good years, good ideas. And you're like, Oh, I guess it wasn't a good idea. That's cool too. Uh, but yeah. And, and just to clarify on that, maybe don't angrily shout into the void and the Twitter replies on every single uh, PB overview that Froxron puts out at, or angrily shouting why your champion should be buffed or nerfed or something yeah, like that. It's uh, not effective. In <laughs> fact, I would even argue it has the opposite effect. When I see people being like that, I'm more, my mental reaction is like, no, what you're saying is wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong. And therefore I'm not going to do it. That's not exactly how it works, obviously, but that's where my mind goes. Spite, spite is definitely a, a strong <laughs> motivator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what do you think the biggest misconception is that people have about how Riot balances the game outside of like obvious answers like, oh, silver balance team, Riot nerfs champions they don't like, or buffs for skins, etc.? Yeah, so those are all wrong, first of all. Uh, you're asking what other ways are people wrong? About yeah, yeah. So those are, those are the obvious yeah. ones. Those are the almost obvious yeah. wrong ones. Do you have any so, other examples of things that are sure. majorly wrong? Majorly wrong. Uh, people think that just because we lost to something, we, we nerf it. Um, that's not true. Despite, you know, all of that stuff. I, th I mean, you hit the big ones, really. Is I'll, I, I can talk through the skins ones. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the skins ones. Why not? I know the people who work on the balance changes don't even know what skins are coming out. <laughs> I know I don't know what skins are coming out, and I have a, you know, a, an SO who works on skins, so uh, I still don't know. Um, and similarly, they have no idea what what is going to get buffed or nerfed. Uh, you know, the Riot Balance team, the people who work on Summoner's Rift team, their average rank is probably somewhere in diamonds, and you know. Not not that you need to be diamond to make these decisions. It's just worth noting. Um, Silver balance team hasn't been a thing for like, I don't know, five plus years. So that one's very outdated. Uh, what were some of the other good ones? Just we don't like that champion. Yeah, yeah sometimes yeah. we don't like that champion. And that just means we can make a good argument for why it should be nerfed. Um, if we don't like a champion, it's often because it doesn't coincide with these holistic goals for league of legends so we're not nerfing it because we don't like it we're nerfing it because the goals we are working towards in the game uh it is inconsistent to have this champion strong turns out that has a strong correlation with not liking a champion uh, but yeah there you go and just to elaborate on some of those points um 
I don't know how recent this data is, but there was a great Reddit post a few years back where somebody correlated all of the data between uh, patches and when a champion's skin came out. And at yeah. least at the time of this post, and of course this is a couple years old now, so you feel free to poke holes in this if you'd yeah. like. I'm sure you will if you're, if you're angry enough. Um, but I believe the data was pretty consistently that champions were actually more likely to get nerfed in a one patch radius of a of a skin coming out than they were to get buffed which i thought was very funny because the perception at least for a while until until that post came out was very much oh graves buff must be a skin coming out or oh graves skin coming out must be a buff coming um yeah you know it's it's just confirmation bias um it's easy to look at oh this champion's getting a buff and they're getting a skin and then draw that you know incorrectly draw that conclusion but you're not looking at all the champions who are getting nerfed and getting skins and be like, okay, let's tally up one on the other thing. So I'll ignore that next time. I feel that's just that's just not how confirmation bias works. So uh, I don't know what it actually is. Sometimes we buff more champions than we nerf. Therefore, it's inevitable that it's going to be in you know weighted in that direction. Uh, sometimes people will will cherry pick data in the sense that like, hey, this champion got buffed within this three these three patches of getting a skin. Therefore, they only buff champions with skins. Um, meanwhile, when they're looking at the champions that got nerfed, they're only looking at that exact patch or something like that. So there, there are a lot of different ways to slice it, right? It, basically, what it comes down to is we aren't allowed to buff or nerf champions without people thinking we're only doing it because of skins. Like, oh, a skin just came out, time to nerf it. Whereas people will use the same arguments like, oh, the skin came out a patch ago, they buffed it so they'd sell more. It's like, you, you can't do either. <laughs> can't so. You know, uh, you just you have to identify when people are not being logical and you can't out logic someone who drew their conclusion outside of logic to begin with. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that League uses a lot more systems in its balance than just champion buffs and nerfs. Um, a great example of this would be um, the jungle rework that just happened. I think there are a few outliers right now. Um, and this is going to date the episode if you're listening at a later time. But as of right now, I think some of the strongest junglers in the game for most ELOs are like Mordekaiser and Evelyn, who received uh, no real direct changes. And even their itemization hasn't really been affected by the update. But the systems around them changed in a way that made them stronger um, to a obscene degree. Um, and that's just something to keep in mind when when you're looking at a balance for a game like League of Legends that just because the champion's number didn't go up that patch doesn't mean that they haven't been affected by the systems around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, on that note, it it goes in many different things where uh, we'll, they'll see people are talking about, most recently, again, dating this episode, uh, Zed is looking a little strong. Um, we're nerfing one of his items. People go, why aren't you nerfing Zed? It's like, well, we're nerfing his items. We expect this to affect him. And then, you know, on the other side of things, like if you do nerf Zed, you go, oh, you're nerfing Zed and you're nerfing his items. Why would you do such a thing? It's like you have two people who are so sure they are right on opposite sides of the argument and neither one of them would like back down. So the only thing I know for sure is one of them, they can't both be right. <laughs> so uh, there are many interacting pieces that you just have to be mindful of and, um, you know, you can communicate it. 
uh, and I guess most recently, uh, Froxon's been doing a pretty good job of communicating it for people who answer. But again, how wide reaching is it? This is a global game. Um, how many people are watching his Twitter replies or whatever versus how many people are seeing the patch notes and thinking, why aren't they nerfing Zed? Um, so that's tough. But, you know, uh, these are these are good problems to have. It's it's yeah, it is something to be said where you have players who are so hyper engaged with the community and the game that they feel that strongly about it to be yeah. um incredibly passionate, sometimes in misguided ways. Yes. Um and I think I think just to lend more credence to to Froxron, uh outside of his incredible patience with some of the people in his Twitter replies, um, when you do engage with members of the highly engaged community i think that information may spread out more than you might expect just because those players are then providing influence to some of the less hyper engaged people um so even if the tweet doesn't get a thousand likes or a thousand retweets that information may get disseminated in other ways um a really interesting example of this um is uh recently (laughs) Uh, uh, Riot Flax on on his uh, stream got uh, accidentally banned for for having a few bad games on Rise, um, and he shared it in his Discord. He said something like, "Oh, I got banned, blah blah blah," and then he peeled it and he got unbanned. And then somehow this weird rumor spread incredibly far that he had like hit on stream live in ranked games or something and then he got banned and he unbanned himself and that spread so ridiculously far outside of just the the small engaged sphere of his stream that it was it was incredible so uh, that's not a positive example but that's just something a way i will say bad news tends to travel faster um, that's true yeah or like yeah i mean that that's just not how it played out right like, you know that <laughs> i know that but people who want to believe that will very readily spread wrong information um, maliciously yeah. or not doesn't matter uh, but yeah and that's something that i would recommend people always take it in with a grain of salt if you're reading something on your timeline whether it's a video a tweet or or a discord post and your initial reaction is to get angry about it maybe do a little bit of research and see if that outrage is justified uh past the one screenshot that you see because if your initial reaction is to get angry then somebody may want you to get angry because of that and that means that they may not be presenting that argument in the best faith and that it goes way past yeah that goes way past game (laughs) yeah check your sources it's not just something your teachers tell you to do so you can pass a class uh it's Mm -hmm. actually relevant there is something to be said about a culture that uh, financially incentivizes the most amount of attention on something and where that draws people's uh, intentions. Yes, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> okay, pulling it back from tangent zone, um, <laughs> what is some advice that you give to the new hires on the GAT team? Like what is day one, they come in, they sit down with with AFIC and they say, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing, what am I doing? What do you tell them, to, what do you tell them there? Oh. Always early on, um, my advice is to just absorb. Uh, we hired them for a reason. I think they have the p- good potential. We have high confidence they can do the job. Um, just understand the systems around you. There is so much to take in, so many people to learn from. Uh, early on is 
um, you know, we have so many different ways to onboard people. But the advice I give is don't feel you need to prove yourself quickly. And it really is just absorb information. There's, um, I'm not going to get the sourcing or the phrasing exactly right, but, uh, you know, one of the higher up QA individuals at Riot has shared this story that uh, the first six months, six to nine months, you actually still don't know what you're doing. And those can be some of the most stressful times. I think on game analysis team, our process is a bit more well-refined and we have enough experience with onboarding people so we can shorten that timeline a bit. But uh, you should not be expected to just like come in, hit the ground running, understand everything at a large company. There are just too many moving pieces and that's just unrealistic. So be kind to yourself, take your time, um, work up to the output that I know you can get to and we'll go from there. That's great advice. And I think that extends past um, Riot and game dev in general. I think absolutely for the first few months at any job, um, you really just need to work with your team members, really absorb that information, learn how everything works. Um, if you've been in a similar role, you may not have to have that long of a ramp up, but every company is going to function differently. There's going to be a lot of little quirks that you message, you slack your teammates like, oh, like, oh yeah, that's this thing. We're just do it like this. And there's no documentation about it. There's no, uh, yeah. nobody's brought it up before, but it's just something that's like ingrained in the team's knowledge that they can share with you. And that will probably happen for as long as you're in that role, even if you've been there for a long, Absolutely. long time. Yeah. On that note, one of the other things I'll tell people is um, keep in mind, like take note of anything that seems silly or just incorrect to do. You know, I've been doing this for so long that uh, I'm kind of dulled to some of the random stuff we do that's just inefficient. It's like you're walking around with a bunch of sand in your shoe and you've just gotten used to it. You're like, ah, oh, whatever, I'll just live with that. And then you'll put sand in some new person's shoe. They'll be like, what the hell is this? And they'll just dump it out and be like, you, you can do that? And it's it's like, oh yeah, that thing that's been bothering me for so long, I actually can just change it instead of just living with it because I've been living with it for so long. Um, so, you know, also keep an eye out for the inefficient things that we do. Uh, if the answer of why we do something is ever, that's just how we've always done it, that is not a good enough answer. So I would challenge that. I would ha ask them to challenge that and uh, see if we can do it better. Yeah, that's a great analogy too. I haven't thought about it like that before. <laughs> Um, something that I've been striving to do a lot at my job recently is uh, since we've been hiring some more people, um, the example that I gave earlier when I said, uh, oh, there's no documentation about this, but that's just kind of how we do things. Um, something I've I've taken upon myself is to make that documentation, at least if it's something that comes up more than once. Yes, um, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, you may not always be around to to share that information and there have been many cases where that can just get lost in the ether. Like the process just gets lost because you had to leave or you weren't available at that time. Um, so if you care about your job and you want to do a good job mm -hmm. and you want to have resources for people coming in to make it easier for them, um, take some time and make some organized, organized is important documentation on, on the little things in your, in your role. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the bus test. If you ever were to just get hit by a bus and be gone, what would happen? Like, do you pass the bus test? It's a bit of a morbid way of thinking. It, but that's just how I've how I've uh, heard it. But yeah, we we do that for onboarding new people. Every time we onboard someone new, uh, we have them update the onboarding process because stuff just naturally changes and just keep it up to date. Yeah, um, but yeah, 
and you see that a lot um at in startups and, and stuff like that especially for for engineers and developers um rarely will a startup pass the best test for any yeah, of their yeah. senior senior developers Absolutely. for a long time <laughs> yes um and that is something... a uh, problem of growth yeah where yeah after your company hits a certain size it's when it becomes more relevant so startups i wouldn't necessarily expect to pass that test <laughs> yeah it's definitely definitely a difficult thing to to do especially when you have mm-hmm. you come in to a company and you're like oh that's dave he's been working here since uh 2005 and yeah he does this 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 and this and like nobody really knows how the architecture works he's i mean he's just always done <laughs> yeah like, oh, yeah look bit. out for that uh <laughs> so going into something more uh relevant to the date of this show coming out let's talk a little bit about preseason and this won't be entirely um like oh a year from now this is worthless but i wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on in preseason and what GAT has identified as outliers. So how does Riot actually identify outliers and make decisions on what to change um, past just win rate data? Yeah. Um, some of it is feels and perception. You know, somebody's like surveying, you know, wait, uh, I guess it was a year ago at this point. Um, Chemtech terrain was one of the things that when we surveyed, it was very, I don't want to say unanimously, it was like overwhelmingly negative. Um, so, you know, we'll have survey information like that going out all over the t- all all the time. Um, that is a source of information. Some of it is, you know, watching influencers or streamers or whoever um, interact with the game, gauging sentiment however we can. You know, recently, um, this is Froxon went out to Korea and other people went there. They did some interviewing of pro players or stuff like that to get more information. It really is just gathering information from any and every source we can, comparing that to the data and seeing what is consistent and um, you know stuff that we should clearly act on. And and something that I like to use as an example of that um, as to why player perception can be important, but also isn't definitive. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You probably know infinitely more about the Citrus than I do, but I saw a lot of perception coming into preseason that it's like, oh, League of Tanks, tanks are going to be so strong. Heart Steel was ridiculously OP, et cetera, et cetera, something about that. Um, and then coming into the season, it looks like, at least from the data I've seen and the discussion I've seen, that tanks are actually uh, not performing up to that level and, in fact, may have been weaker than they previously were. So there's a lot more... Um, power going into tanks coming into this next patch that wasn't yep. there before. So part of that is holistically we undervalued the importance and impact of uh, bomb center and just the damage over time aspect of the mythics. Those were carrying for as much as people thought like oh I don't really want to spend money on that or oh it's boring. Uh, turns out it was very powerful. Maybe not the most satisfying thing, but it was very powerful. Heart steel is an example of the opposite where it's maybe not the most powerful thing. But it's real satisfying, um, you know, with that satisfaction comes frustration for the opponent. Part of what suggests, like, the, pr- the problem with Heartsteel, and this is perhaps a bit too specific to your question, but Heartsteel itself is, um, to some extent, a feast or famine thing. It's a win more item. Uh, you're spending a lot of your initial gold on some CDR and HP. Uh, that doesn't necessarily help you fight better, even with the... the um, heart steel effect but if you ever do get ahead and you can proc that on cooldown and charge it up and get a and 
you know, continue to build it, build more and more stacks um, from multiple people in bigger fights, snowballs real hard. And then when it snowballs real hard, uh, you can start to do some pretty unfair things. Uh, I'm actually going to mention this. I played in a playtest literally this morning. I was Volley Bear, had Heart Steel. Um, and I, I can say this because Alex was on the show not too long ago as well. Uh, he was playing Caitlyn, and I felt bad for him. He had no chance. He could do nothing. Um, and someone looking at that would be like, wow, Heart Steel is OP BS item. Um, when ultimately, uh, you know, the game state was very favorable for me. And uh, that moment is more likely to stick in his mind than, you know, what you don't realize is someone on the other team also had heart steel and that person didn't do anything with it. So is the item OP or is it just people that see it when it succeeds? That's the confirmation bias again, coming into effect. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it is, and this is, this is like totally fair. If people think something is, is like too good, uh, what, whatever the data says, doesn't necessarily mean that's what's best for League of Legends. If League of Legends is a game where everything is perfectly balanced and everything has a 50% win rate, that does not make it a better game. Ultimately, we want League to be a better game. And I'm intentionally using the word better because it's super vague and can mean a million different things. Um, more balanced does not always mean better. And, you know, we can define balance in so many... I'm going to get go down a huge <laughs> rabbit hole if I continue there. But a lot of it comes down to player perception and confirmation bias as to why they uh, misassess the true power of various items. Yeah, and I actually have two, two separate but I think really good questions to bounce off of that, and I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this. So the first one is the example that you gave with, with Alex, um, who is a good friend of the show, I've been on many times. Um, in, in that situation... Would you say that 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 playtest gave you good data on on the power of like heart steel or the power of tanks versus ADCs? Uh, yes and no. I think it is easy to misidentify. So in terms of like going back to earlier, is how would I remove bias from this and present this to a designer? I could just show them the clip, and then they'll look and be like, "Oh yeah, at a glance that looks very not okay." But then you look closer and be like, okay, you're level 18, he's level 13, you have full build, including another thing I'm not going to go into. Um, and he is like, he has two and a half items. It's like, this actually matches my expectations in terms of game state. So the more important thing, and this is the, the more of the yes part, is you look at when I first started doing it, like the first clips that were close, my first encounter with someone wasn't as ridiculous as that later one. So you assess that that first encounter and think, does this match my expectations? Uh, ultimately, my answer would be yes for this one. So my conclusion would be that despite getting ahead and doing unfair things, um, it, it's still okay for the game. Uh, one of the analogies that August, uh, August has used in the past, um, designs a bunch of champions and other fun things, is... You compare League of Legends to basketball, and the difference is when you when you get ahead in League, you get stronger and more ahead. Think about if every time you scored a basket in basketball, you grew six inches. That's essentially what League is. Um, so you're not going to compare this, you know, a hundred foot person to a six foot person. You're going to compare them when they're both six feet and see what started the snowball. Yeah, and incidentally, that's a 
great analogy on why comeback mechanics have to exist, even though yeah. they may not be the favorite of uh, certain players. Because exactly, if you're a if you're a ten foot basketball player just dunking on the the little league kids across the goal, that's not going to be a fun experience for them. And ultimately, some people may disagree. I don't really think that's a fun experience for you because dunking on people is yeah. fun, but I it think it gets old. It yeah, gets it gets old. I think I think games are a lot more fun when there's when there's a lot of back and forth, um, there's a lot of of competition and um, comeback mechanics, especially in league right now. Uh, player perception is that they can be like a little aggressive sometimes, but I think that there are major reasons why those exist, and I think ignoring those reasons are disingenuous to why why the game is balanced the way it is. Um, For sure, yeah. Go ahead. You had a, yeah, question. sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent. I actually wanted to to go a little bit off of that, uh, the initial playtest question. Um, so based on the, the assumption that, that you still found the data that you got from that game as valuable, um, you playtest fairly regularly. You said th- about three times a day, um, so-and-so days a week. How do you balance that information as as a large amount of games for your team, but still in the grand scheme of things, an infinitesimally small amount of games from the even the NA player base or the global player base? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we don't try and throw time at the problem. Um, yeah, one of the interview questions that has been informative in the past is like, all right, you have infinite resources. How do you test this thing? You now have very limited resources. How do you test this thing? Okay, now you have reasonable resources how do you kind of test this thing and you know the the infinite resources question the answer is always going to be like oh i'll just throw infinite money at it infinite time i will map out the numbers exactly because i have infinite resources the limited thing is like probably don't even want to play test you want to just throw some math at it and do the best you can obviously you want somewhere in between um a lot of our challenge is how do we generate that information with reasonable resources um, so a lot of that is watching replays, um, looking through clips, doing some static analysis where we are going through the math, like, Hey, this item is this much more cost efficient. It does this much damage. It had this many procs in this team fact in this team fight, compare it to other, other factors, other items. Um, there are a lot of different tools you can use to more confidently draw a conclusion as opposed to, yeah, I played it 20 times. It felt strong. Um, as far as removing bias goes, playing it 20 times and saying it felt strong is loaded with bias uh, yeah. for many reasons. And I think, I think that's something that um, I think more people should realize when they think about a, a play test team and they're like, how did this get past the play test team? Um, you could have a thousand people at Riot dedicated to playing League of Legends all day long and testing things. You could expand the GAT team to to a large, large amount of people. Uh, the minute those changes get onto live, the 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 sample size of the data increases beyond order. Blows of it out of the water within yeah. the first six hours. And, and I think that's that's important for people to realize that that you can um, plan for every eventuality, but the second that it goes to a larger audience, people are going to find issues that you just missed. Yeah, and it's actually more complex than that. If I if I can uh, interject, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, absolutely. Um, the 
this is another common misconception is like, oh, well, you've been testing this for six months. How did you not know this? It's like, you want to know what it was six months ago? It was very different. We often, we do three tests a day. Two of those tests have different iterations. Um, so we, we realistically get a maximum, absolute maximum of like five games on any given iteration. Uh, it is exceptionally rare that we will play something like, all right, yeah, we're going to make no changes then play it again. Like, all right, we're going to make no changes and then play it. You know, that's just not how it works. So you're getting very limited slices of every piece of every, every piece of content. Um, so it's definitely more than that. And that's just more reason why you can't just throw hours of it, throw hours at it. Yeah. And actually that sort of segues into the second question I wanted to ask. Um, originally bouncing I, i'm kind of forget where we were because <laughs> of all the tangents but sure. um the, oh okay yeah this is okay originally going back to the power of something like heart steel versus the power of something like bomby cinder um and this is something that i've heard multiple devs talk about a lot and i'd love to hear your perception on it where do you see um something like called invisible power versus very visible power uh, how do you think that actually affects the balance of the game? So the example you gave was Bomby Cinder was a lot more powerful than people may have realized, um, even though it wasn't able to easily see that. Uh, one of the most important things is satisfaction, right? Um, there are so many examples I can pull from. The oldest one I can remember is, you know, like season three Sona or however long ago it was. Um, where that champion just passively gave stats to everyone and was crazy win rate, but who cares? No one liked playing this champion, even though she had like a 56 plus percent win rate. Um, ultimately, what we're trying to do is create the best experience we can. That is going to be a combination of satisfying for the user and fair to everyone involved. Invisible power is neither satisfying and therefore is not fair. Um, so... There are times where it's like, hey, we actually just want to make this champion do better, but um, we people already think they're crazy OP. Uh, an example of this is like Riven back in the day. The champion felt very powerful, but was numerically very weak. This is a long, long time ago. So we could just change flat health regen. Or it was the other way around. Was very powerful, but still didn't feel um, the way she should. So you can just change the health regen. That is virtually unperceivable to the vast majority of players, but has huge implications to the you know the raw power or win rate or whatever of a champion. Um, so there there are times where you want something to be powerful or not powerful and imperceivable, but most of the time you want to feel the satisfaction. And that's that's a really funny example. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind, and this isn't the case anymore, but this is going to show how long. Uh, I've been playing League. Back in the day, there was like a meme um, when Riot buff champions. It was like, oh, plus five movement speed XD, where yeah. it, it was perceived as one of the weakest buffs that you could give a champion. And over so the course, 50%. yeah, yeah, over the course <laughs> of of the last few years, I believe that perception is like radically shifted the other way, where it's like, oh, plus five MS, this champion's gonna be insane now, especially for champions like junglers, where that movement speed, yeah has a yep. huge effect um would you quantify that as invisible power yeah. by the way uh yeah i think i would at this point so i, th I think i would as well yeah i mean the way 
you think about all of the games of League of Legends, like how close were the games? You could probably plot those on a bell curve. Like some of them are super close. Um, that could have gone either way. Some of them were snowballing. In that entire curve, there's going to be so many games where like, oh yeah, that person getting to the fight one second later is actually pivotal, pivotal in the outcome of the game. Um, five movement speed actually changes that number of instances a lot. Uh, so therefore has pretty big win rate implications. You know, just being being to every play faster is important. Um, sidetracking a bit on the movement speed specific example, but yeah, uh, invisible power is an interesting thing. Yeah, it's 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 very another. Okay, I'm gonna go on another example because this one was was really fascinating to me as well. Um, I remember seeing this said quite a bit in the past and and as always you can correct me if i'm wrong because uh, i don't want to be spreading misinformation mm-hmm. um health regen is a lever that y'all use to affect higher levels of play more than lower levels of play because uh, it's something that affects a, a, a good player can punish somebody with lower health regen much more than a bad player can um and that's like another level of of how you can actually balance the game versus high low versus low elo. So I'm not entirely sure where health regen um, lands on that spectrum of like elo skew, but I will think out loud and think that if I were a really good player, I would know my limits. I would know that I either can or cannot all in at this point and know the outcome of it. Uh, A lower player is less likely to know that and more likely to just all in whenever. Uh, if you're constantly dying, health regen doesn't matter. If you're constantly trading and letting the fight continue and like you're not just going battling to the death, um, health regen is more impactful. I think, therefore, it is more likely to have a bigger impact at higher MMR where they know their limits and realize that, like, oh, I can't win this, so I'm not going to take the fight. And it just turns into a short trade. And then over time, the short trades add up to, you know, 50 HP. And then that can shift the victor of the... Uh, eventual all-in and that'll have big snowballing effects on the outcome of the game because they just grew they're the basketball player that just grew six inches yeah and i think um now that i'm actually putting thought into it i think that lever was actually base hp at like level one versus base um, hp is lower i would say for similar well base hp tends to just be holistically powerful i don't know if it's skewed one way more than the other Uh, but those are both like pretty strong levers and oftentimes like let's say the game is decided by the first kill if you think about hp regen um in the course of a laning phase before the first recall that can very easily add up to you know 50 to 100 hp depending on how long it goes and how much hp regen it is if you're going to all in with 100 hp less than you normally would it's not unreasonable to see why that would change the outcome of the fight and consequently the outcome of the game that's why those types of changes have meaningful impacts. Yeah, and I, I sorry for tangenting so much on invisible power. <laughs> I just really love the idea that there are changes that you can make to a game outside of just like flat damage buffs or flat damage nerfs um, that can affect different levels of skill much more. And I think that's yeah. something that League has had to leverage really effectively because balancing, like you said, for that global community uh, is a very, very, very difficult job. Exactly. Um, outside of those those levers that you can think of immediately. 
Um, so this is actually something that you hinted at earlier in the conversation a while ago because of our discussions, but I wanted to touch back on it. Um, how do you know when a system doesn't belong in the game? And what is the process behind making those changes? So the example that we gave was Chemtech Dragon and Chemtech Soul mm-hmm. being pretty much removed uh, a few months in and then being added back this season as a different system. Yep. Um, that's up. There's no good answer. Uh, it is going to be highly variable on the situation. In the case of Chemtech Soul or Terrain, it was uh, largely player feedback driven. Um, you know, I I will say in our testing, we identified some of those concerns. Uh, we perhaps didn't communicate them as effectively as we should have. Uh, but I will also say I have extremely high confidence that if we didn't remove it from the game, players could learn it. Uh, and there actually was meaningful gameplay and interesting decisions around it. Of that, I'm like, I can I can pretty confidently prove that there were interesting decisions around the terrain, around that Drake and like plays you could make because of it and everything that flows with that. Um, you know, that to me means the feedback we should have been giving is, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this word to you in the past, but the word is grokable. Basically means how easily it's a it's a funny word. I've never heard it before I worked at Riot, but uh, I heard it and I was like, that word is hilarious. I'm gonna use it if I can. Basically means how learnable is something. Um so an example is like Yasuo. He tends to actually be pretty grokable. You can lose on him and be like, Oh yeah, but if I had dashed here, acute here, if I hit this ability, like I could have done these other ten things and I would have done better. It's like cool, you know the path to improve. Uh Chemtech terrain, people lose and you're like, Well, that was just lame. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, and unless you have someone who's, like, very analytical thinking about it, that might not be clear. And that's a problem. So um, you know, I got a bit away from the initial question of how do you know something, a system isn't working? That is just one example of how you can know. If this one was player-driven, um, and the feedback that we should have honed in more is how learnable was this piece of content. Um, you know, this was a year, two years ago, however long ago. I would say since then, our team actually is more matured in terms of process and how we analyze the game because we're constantly trying to improve. Um, And I think we do have in place some more checks to be like, is this learnable? What is the frustration against? How do we we address this? And we kind of just have this ever-growing list of questions or checkboxes we want to to see answered before we um, will be more confident moving forward with a piece of content. Um, And just to be clear, I... I think it is still worth taking these risks. Um, if leagues stop taking risks, the league game's going to get pretty stale pretty quickly. Um, so even though the Chemtech soul terrain, whatever, didn't work out, uh, I do think there were a lot of learnings from it. And that type of risk is the same thing that lets us create um, you know, the current one, which I think is awesome. I actually really like this one, this terrain. Um, the fact that I haven't seen negative like overwhelming or i haven't seen really any negative sentiment about it um that's pretty impressive and these types of things you don't usually see like oh my god this is the coolest thing ever it's more no news is good news and we added variance or we added some different differentiating factors to the game in a way that players tolerate and that means we've increased the longevity of the game in some capacity yeah and i think i think um players are probably still exploring a lot of the different abilities that the the new chemtech terrain 
adds to the game. I think we're going to see over the course, and especially when pro play uh, comes around, we're going to see some yeah. insane blast cone plays or some insane <laughs> scrying. Well, maybe not scrying orb plays, but I'm sure it will impact the game. Uh, a lot more than it may be right now during preseason. Um, something that you said about Grok ability, uh, I just wanted to bounce off that as well. Um, I think, and this this is just from my perspective, players may not have been able to to uh, Grok um, Chemtech terrain as easily because it was a variable that didn't happen uh, consistently. Um, it was a a thing that on average would happen one out of every five games. And some games don't even go to soul or go to terrain. So when you get to a situation where you're only encountering this, this very um, powerful uh, system, one out of every 20 games, I think it's more likely that you're going to run into frustration and, and issues going into that because you don't have the experience needed that you may get out of every other game you play in League of Legends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a definitely replay or like frequency of interacting with something ties into how learnable is something. Um, that's a lever we've used in the past, often with new champions, is sometimes we will start their ult cooldowns on lower than it normally should be, you know. Um, Old examples of that that I can think of are Talia and Bard. Those are champions that people just were misusing the ults and they had like reasonable cooldowns, which just meant people couldn't learn them. So uh, early on, we would significantly lower their cooldown, give players more of a chance to learn them, see what good casts look like, just cast more in general, uh, and then bring it back to a reasonable cooldown. And then it's like, cool, now the champion is fine. Um, similarly, I think think we could have done more consistency on like what the new map terrains you would get during preseason just to increase that frequency so they could get a better chance at learning it um but for sure uh repetition plays a huge part yeah especially because i think the largest frustration coming from chemtech terrain was um that it was so very snowball-y where, where if you had an advantage you could really use it uh to extend your lead more than some of the other souls because killing people out of out of stealth uh is historically in league of legends a very powerful tool for champions who are ahead or for for teams that are ahead um and sort of going off of that i think you you said this and i think they actually did do this um at least in preseason of last year i, I remember the new souls ocean and, and chemtech were given a boosted um encounter rate uh yeah so. they might i'm not entirely sure how often we use something like that um but yeah that is definitely a tool at our disposal that if we don't i think we should yeah i think that that's very very good to hopefully get more players on board with these changes and not just make it like a one in every five or every 10 games um coming into coming into more discussion about preseason and you guys have been working on the preseason for like what okay when do you actually start um oh I'm double. <laughs> when do you actually start working on the next preseason after this preseason launches? Like so how far into the year? Oh god. Uh sorry, you're asking how long until we start on the next one? Yeah, so so preseason 13 just launched. 
how long into the cycle until the gameplay team starts working on preseason 14? Um, so the way we've gone about that in the past has shifted over time. Uh, currently, I am, I'm pretty sure we will start working on next preseason early next year. So, so like fairly early February. on. And, yeah, that's like early ideation. Um, you know, you don't just have a million ideas. It's just like, okay, now we're just going to throw this one. And it, a bit more planning goes into it than that. But that planning starts pretty early on. Okay, so bouncing off of that, did you have personally any fears coming into this preseason that may have been realized or not realized? Uh, I mean, I had my guesses for what would be more problematic. But I wouldn't say, honestly, I've shipped runes reforged. I've shipped uh, <laughs> item updates. I've shipped old chemtech, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't have any fears. It's just <laughs> how big are the risks? I think some of the risks were bigger than others, but they were all totally within bounds and worth taking. For sure. That's not um, a cop-out answer. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, it, it's for, for, you said you've been arrived for almost 10 years now. I'm sure that, that a lot of those fears have just been evaporated by this point. Um, I actually love those examples that you gave. Historically, what do you think are some of like the biggest uh, uh, missteps that that have been shipped out to league at the live, other than the examples that we've already talked about? Biggest missteps. Ooh. Um, I can give you some examples, and you can you can let me know if you I'll agree tell with you which them. ones I agree with. Yeah, okay. I'm thinking of ones. Yeah, go go ahead. Uh, uh, rework Akali on release. Oh. That's a fun one to talk about. Um, I think the problem is so as far as the untargetability under turrets goes, we always knew that that was incredibly powerful. And if she could push a lead, uh, would be like incredibly oppressive, like not okay levels of oppressive. Uh, in the vast majority of our testing for her, her lane phase was abysmal and she actually couldn't generate a lead. So it never manifested. Um, I think the biggest misstep we have there is uh we let a champion have this tool we never validated that if this champion is very strong how oppressive is this thing we more just kind of assumed like yeah this champion's going to be weak in the early and then it won't really matter um so that is that is definitely a misstep i would say but again uh, i don't regret taking that risk for sure um in the same vein uh a, a more recent champion something like Zeri coming into the game and sort of dominating pro play uh, and having varying levels of success in solo queue. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to be a broken record. I think that one was a miss. Uh, a lot of good did come from it, and I think it's a good risk worth taking. So that champion is also a champion. Zeri is a champion that players like deeply engaged with, despite being numerically weak. That means we really tapped into something that was truly exciting for players. Um, we unfortunately weren't able to close the gap between pro play and normal play to the point where like the champion feels reasonable to pick while not being a pentakill machine in pro. Um, so, you know, it'll take some follow-up work. And I think we probably didn't do enough to validate uh, this, we'll also use the word levers, for uh, her pro skew. Um, but so in that in that sense, she definitely was a miss. But again, I think League of Legends, 
players holistically like across the board over like your average player players are more likely to enjoy league of legends because she exists i think she is deeply engaging enough that that is the type of experience we want to create for people and she is the right experience for some people obviously not everyone that's a very well reasoned response i think um and oh man i had another example that i wanted to go into but i i kind of it's kind of slipped my mind when we're talking like with Yumi, Zeri. I thought about yumi I'll oh yeah yeah I can't, I can't believe yeah. i forgot about um, yumi yeah so yumi i think you've heard me talk about this in the past yumi does a lot of truly great things for the game uh yumi is the champion that you can introduce your friend to the game who's never played and it's like totally intimidated by it and now they can start experiencing it. They can see the systems. They can be like, oh, that was actually kind of fun. I got to play the game. Now let me try Nami or whoever, right? And like, she is a champion that is easier for new players to pick up. Obviously, there are lots of problems with, with her. I'm not going to pretend those don't exist. I'm not going to go into all the problems. <laughs> but uh, they haunt your dreams. Thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one thing I will say is a lot of people that say, like, delete Yumi uh and stuff of similar well worse nature um <laughs> they are totally oblivious to the upsides or don't care um and self-centered around all the upsides of what she does through the game and this goes back to one of the comments i was making about you know preseason jungle earlier it's like yes you don't like what this does individually to you you know what else you don't like you don't like if people stop playing the game things like this keep the game new keep people coming back getting more difficultly get new people in um that is important to the longevity of the game even if in isolation in like the short term slice of time it is very frustrating uh so you know league has been around for however many years at this point 10 10 plus years what's like 13 years now um we can't be looking at the hey right now how do we cash in on all of our goodwill and like sell out right it's it's thinking you know, five, ten years from now, what is going to help what is going to help contribute to league's experience then? Um, and a champion like Yumi actually does a lot of really good in that space. Yeah. And I think it's important um for players who even personally want to be incredibly selfish and, and focus on their own experience in the game. Um but then in the same breath I've seen this a lot, this perception a lot, where they, they say Riot does a terrible job uh, allowing new players to get into the game because it's just an awful experience, which there may be a lot of truth to that to that um, statement. But it, you, I, I feel like you can't complain about that and then also complain about um, easy champions, quote-unquote, being in the game and, and then being powerful um, because you need to have some avenues for new players to get in. and with 160 something champions now or 155 um there's obviously going to be outliers based on that yep i mean you, you hit the nail on the head uh the only thing i would disagree with is players absolutely can complain about that in the same <laughs> sentence uh they're just wrong to do so yeah <laughs> or I um, wrong to do so yeah that's 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 always something that's very difficult about dealing with with player feedback um that i've seen i just I, it's it would be, it'd be incredibly frustrating for me i can't imagine how rough it is when it's your job um let's talk about a little bit about uh the preseason jungle changes because i know we, we we hinted about that earlier in the show 
and I wanted to see where, what you thought. Uh, we can talk about the, the changes that are live right now and then some of the changes that are coming in with the next patch that have been announced. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, outside of the stuff I've already talked about, it does help bring new players into the role, which is needed. Um, I will say anecdotally, I so I, I do main jungle. I have for a while now, again, um, thinking versus mechanical play. Um, I don't always get my role anymore. So it definitely did a lot in terms of increasing, we'll see how much it sticks, but short-term interest in the role, which quite frankly was the main goal of all the changes. Yeah, that's actually something that happened to me as well. I think uh, this probably was a bit of, of recency bias um, coming into it, but I think for the first time in my history of the game, I got autofilled out of jungle uh, to like a separate role when I was playing with my friends. Um, and I thought that was hilarious because that just didn't happen before. <laughs> there, was no, there was no situation where, where people were trying to queue jungle over something like mid or top or ADC. Um, so or I thought anything. that was <laughs> or support, yeah. <laughs> um, so on top of that, do you want to address some of the the uh criticisms that people say about some of the jungle changes, like oh, making the jungle too easy to get into, making the jungle making counter jungle less um powerful uh what what would you say to people who say something like that? yeah, uh that's just a classic like looking at things black and white as opposed to a gradient. Um, so I'll talk about the counter jungling first. It's like people say you can't counter jungle now or or something like that. And it's like, well, you can. It's just harder. It's like, well, now it's too hard. It's like, okay, how are you where's the line of too hard? How are you judging that? If we right now we added a lever to make make it uh to be able to easily adjust how difficult or easy it is to counter jungle. Uh, we could just as easily make that number go negative and now you're actually better off counter jungling, right? That is that is a reasonable option we could go with. Um, so I would ask the question, like, where where is the line? Um, because if we were to do something like make it 1%, does that mean that uh, counter jungling is dead? If we did like half a percent, there's surely a point where it doesn't matter. And my point is, uh, it is a gradient, and that's what people struggle to understand it's the same things like you just buffed this champion now they're op or you just nerfed this champion after buffing them you just undid everything it's like well we could buff a champion by 5 ad and then nerf them by 100 ad guess what that champion is not the same champion they were before all of that changes so the advice i would give is don't look at things black and white and instead look at things across the spectrum be like hey there is a line it is variable we're trying to find the right point Let's talk about where that right point is, as opposed to saying, jungling's dead. Oh, you can't do any of this stuff now. Talking about like multi-camping or, or skill expression in terms of PVEing in the jungle to it faster. You can still pull the camp over. The skill checks are still there. They're just different and less uh, punishing or less deterministic of like how effective your game is going to be. You can still drag a camp uh, and you know kill it as its patience is running out and be starting the next camp instantly that is a skill check that's just not the same skill check that people are used to so it's being open to change and understanding like where the lines are for these various outputs yeah and i think um it's surprising that that junglers are coming into this with with that perception 
um, because I think Jungle consistently, and, and this could be confirmation bias, um, but I think Jungle consistently gets the most changes season over season. Like usually every preseason, it feels like there are systemat- systematic changes to Jungle. Um, so you feel like they should be used to it by now coming into that. <laughs> uh, by the way, do you think that that makes things... I know usually these Jungle changes are, are focused on on providing more... Um, balance to the role, and, and this most recent one was was focused on getting more players into the role because it was so hard. The barrier of entry was so high. Do you think that having that role change so much is something that has given players a level of frustration that may not be seen in other roles? Absolutely. I think it's going to vary person to person. Some people are okay with it. Some people, I'm sure, hate it, and some people let the world know that they hate it. Um, so you'll get people on any part of the spectrum in that sense. Uh, but hopefully this last one will at least make it more approachable for people and you won't feel like you have to completely relearn everything in the same way. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that is easy to be easy to forget coming into a season like this. It's preseason. Things are going to change. Um, adapting and overcoming is always going to be the the way that you kind of get better at League of Legends and especially for a game that's constantly changing. Uh and obviously this is this is a uh incredibly small sample size, but I still find myself getting absolutely bodied by junglers who are much better than me. So I wouldn't say that there's no uh way for better junglers to express their skills. Um especially when you can use your advantage to leverage a uh, a treats like starving the enemy jungler out of treats um because i think that's something that personally for me is very frustrating when my my team is behind i'm not able to get my camps and i'm not able to upgrade my smite item um so i would argue that that counter jungling is still quite strong even if it's not strong in the same way that it used to be um and i think hopefully more players will realize that there are those strengths and weaknesses still in the game, just in different aspects. Exactly. Uh, you, you know, summing up what you said, I, which I totally agree with the skill expression is still there. It's just shifted a bit. Yeah. And I think, um, I actually like the, the fact that it is shifted away from PVEing in terms of your skill expression. Uh, I was never really a big fan of double camping. I thought that it was, um, gimmicky. It it felt like an exploit more than a more than a skill expression, and maybe that's just because it was it was so recent in terms of how long I've been playing the game. Like I don't think people were double camping a year ago, right? It seems like it was much more popular in the Not last all six champions, months. At least it's yeah. it's picked up for sure. Yeah, um, picked up. It had picked up. Yeah, <laughs> had picked up no longer. Um, and I think I think that it was it was funny to me to see such attachment to something like that coming out of something that to me was a very recent uh, addition to league. And I know that there are still some funny, funky things you can do in the game uh, with champions like Shaco uh, using your boxes to lease camps. But um, personally, there was no, there was no love lost when that chain, when the double camping was removed because I didn't like it. Yeah. And I would argue that the people who are sad that a mechanic like that is gone, they're just, change adverse in the first place so no matter what you do unless it's exactly the same they're going to be sad so yeah. <laughs> if you do nothing they're eventually sad because people stop playing 
you make changes, they're sad because it's changed. So better just like change it, do the thing that's better long-term, they'll get over it. And then that's that. Well said. Um, let's see. We've run out of talking points on the dock, but we still have some time left. Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about for a preseason or just in general? Uh, if you see people building a lot of heart steel, build Divine Sunder and Bork. <laughs> so Divine Sunder is very powerful. <laughs> Divine Sunder is something that that I actually am super interested in. I want to know your perspective on it. Um, obviously, there are there's an inverse correlation between how powerful Divine Sunder is and how powerful tanks are. Um, it's 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 opposite ends of the spectrum. It, it gains power when tanks are popular. Um, but I, I honestly thought Divine Sunder was just like an overhyped, overpicked item. I, I feel like after a lot of the nerfs, it felt like it wasn't, maybe not viable, but it wasn't the powerhouse that it used to be. Um, outside of the tank meta, quote unquote, coming into this preseason, do you think, uh, what do you think it has picked up in, in popularity and power? Uh, what has picked up in popularity and power? Well, why why do you think Divine Sunder has? And then also, sure, what what else do you think has picked so, up? In I'll power? I'll talk about Divine Sunder a little before. I do think it was overhyped. I think it is better in pro play than it is in solo queue. I think part of that goes back to like the the health uh, regen argument, where if you're all inning, it's not <laughs> the most cost efficient all in item. Where if you're doing short trades, it is very obviously good for like, hey, I'm going to do a quick trade and then back out, and then do a quick trade and back out good players tend to know the limits better and do more of those short trades. So I think that's why it was overhyped is people purchased it when they weren't utilizing it correctly. I don't think that's the case for pro play. Um, I think it actually is good there. And also they tend to run more tanks than solo queue. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, I think that is like, that's my analysis of divine Sunderer over the past year or so. Um, moving into preseason in terms of stuff that's picked up, I think, Stuff that is starting to pick up and players are realizing is a uh, jock show. I think that item is quite good, uh, has been for a while. And I think, um, you know, Heart Steel overshadowed that, even though it wasn't better. So, in a lot of testing, jock show is just like king for a lot of its early iterations. Um, yeah, we nerfed it quite a bit and it's still <laughs> quite good. Uh, the most recent thing that I've learned of is um you go demonic embrace on on lilia you go demonic embrace into jock show um so lilia's melee now so she gets the extra bonus from demonic embrace and then with that uh you hit anyone with a single spell and that'll full stack your jock show because of the way dots interact with it so definitely an unhealthy interaction but in the short term i'm gonna play it because that's just the type <laughs> of player i am <laughs> that's actually something that that i thought of a lot when i saw jack show uh before it got hotfix buffed, I saw that item and I said, that's an item that has been nerfed many, many times over the course of its if its iteration coming into the league because there's no way that Riot looked at that item and was like, okay, yeah, that's the numbers we're shipping it at. So after the hotfix bus went out, I'm like, okay, this looks more in line with, with what I thought a brand new tank item mythic would have been. And I think what you said now that players are starting to realize the power of it and, and explore that, um, you even see champions like Master Yi uh building it and then i think we'll we'll see sort of the classic pendulum where where an item comes out or a champion comes out and originally it feels very weak and then it gets 
buffed and then players are like oh why did they buff it it should, it should never have been buffed this item was insane um and i love seeing that that cycle because it's happened so many times uh, but people still don't recognize it that yeah my favorite example of that is gale force where people are like this item sucks when it was a 90 second cooldown on release why would i ever do this cool then we change it to 60 seconds and a few people try like wait it's actually really good then everyone tried like okay cool now we're gonna nerf it back to 90 seconds stay the same <laughs> it's like like okay sometimes yeah. players just need a little help and we we want to speed up that learning curve as opposed to you know waiting six months for something to catch on um something that you hinted at a little bit with the the lilia demonic embrace jack show uh talk and i'd love to talk about this more i know that this is probably a hard thing to quantify but a lot of the sentiment that i see uh especially on reddit and twitter um and this goes sort of back to like why win rate isn't really the sole identifier of why a champion and should be buffed or nerfed. But what do you want to say to people who who look at champions with high win rate, high play rate, um, consistently uh, that don't get touched, don't get nerfed, versus champions with a lower win rate, a lower play rate that do get nerfed? So, for example, Lilia right now is I think is slated to receive a nerf, even though her win rate isn't out of line with what most people would expect. Yeah, so um, I'll talk about the Lilia case a bit first. Um, it hasn't caught on yet, is the first point. We can we can slice the data and look at like, hey, with these with these items, these item combinations or this build order compared to, you know, her more popular build orders of um, Leandries or whatever, uh, how does it compare? And it is not even close. Um, so the nerfs we're doing are going to try and get a little bit ahead of that. So it's definitely something that is like too strong that hasn't fully caught on yet. But if it does catch on, uh, it's something we wouldn't be happy with because it is very numerically out of line. Um, so it's easy to weaponize data and be like, hey, I'm going to pull this slice of data in this way and use it to make my argument in. Ha ha, I've checked me. And it's like, yeah, your sample size of 200 with looking at only in this ELO bracket and these uh, matchups, you know, in this lunar new lunar phase or whatever, right? Like whatever BS slice of data, uh, it is easy to weaponize. So try and look at things more holistically and where's the direction of stuff going as opposed to where is stuff currently is more interesting. And uh, League of Legends is a global game with many different types of players who engage with it differently try and empathize and think about how others experience the content um, would be would be my advice there yeah um and i think do you do you find that players weaponizing data is more frustrating than players just blindly saying things that they feel like a player coming in and saying like oh master use op uh when he has like a 30 38 percent win rate versus players coming in with with a screenshot that says mastery is sitting at 52 percent op yeah. but in like one bracket uh so which one do i prove i mean what depends. do you hate more <laughs> think, what do i hate more i think i hate the person who just blindly comes in i don't i don't really hate either i hate the person who blindly comes in and then doesn't listen to reason and then constantly changes the argument and changes the, that's what i actually hate <laughs> Uh, if someone's going to come in with their data, I'll be like, okay, I actually love poking holes in their argument. Like, cool, let's let's look at this. Let's look at this slice. Where where are you getting this data from? 
Uh, what's the sample size? What are you comparing it to? Uh, you know, there, there are a bunch of questions I can ask, like, what is it in these other brackets? You can actually look at them. I, I can easily look at the bigger picture and start to compare and contrast. And sometimes like, I can look and go, huh, it is out of line. This has happened in the past. I've, on stream, I've done this. And then I've looked at internal data and, you know, it's slightly different, but it's just over the bar of buffer and earth. Like, cool, that makes sense. Um, and that's one of those cases where it's close and, you know, I understand the frustration, but, you know, maybe we need to tweak our, our boundaries a bit more. Um, the person who just comes in and says, Master Yi is OP, it's like, okay, my first question is going to be, how are you drawing that conclusion? Um, and then, you know, <laughs> it can branch in one of many different directions <laughs> from that question. Um, some of them I enjoy talking about, which is just going to be like, well, I'm looking at these data and, you know, they actually have put some thought into it or uh, the combination of these things. So in this case, like with Lilia, if someone said, I think the combination and the interaction with Demonic Embrace, her being melee, she was already really good with it. This is just a straight buff that I don't think is fully cut on yet. Plus her interaction with Chuck. Yeah, I can. I, I would love to have that conversation and talk about all the interacting pieces and how how they uh, make something strong ahead of the curve, like before it's caught on fully. Um you know, then you get the person who says, well, in my last game, they went 23 and one and one shot me. It's like, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it depends. But uh, and the other side of things, those conversations are fun, but for very different reasons. Yeah, um, there's there's I, I really like this. I'm going to give a very specific example from the AFIC stream to hopefully entice oh people I coming into this. <laughs> so so about a year ago, there was uh, an individual who came into the chat um, who was very convinced that Bloodthirster was in a terrible state. And I think they were a Draven main, um, which which yep. may speak to... BT guy. Yeah, <laughs> BT guy. Um, they're a Draven main, which may speak to some of their attitude and their their uh, perception of the game. But um, you engaged with that person for a very long time. Maybe, long time. Yeah, maybe upwards of two or three hours. And just seeing the way that they shifted their argument, but then also went back to their original point, even though it wasn't, wasn't correct, um, was very funny and very, very yep. informative to me because I'm like, okay, so there are people out there who, who try to engage with a, 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 a argument logically, but then they just completely fail to use their own logic. They, they, they mm -hmm. at least approach with logic or or the the perception of logic and then they just let that fall apart and and use their own emotional uh, arguments against them. Yeah, and you know, this is actually a very important lesson and one of the things I do my best to instill in the members of my team is when you're engaging in these arguments, it is best to engage them from the perspective of wanting to learn more, understand someone else's perspective as opposed to being agenda driven and trying to convince someone in this case this bt guy uh, as we so absolutely named him um he very clearly was only interested in getting me to say yes bt is a weak item for and like agreeing with everything he said um where you know a better approach is like hey i would like to talk through some things um and this goes back to how we provide feedback our goal isn't to um you know tell a designer no they can't 
it's to provide information and help help them be as informed on the content of something as possible and we want we want to have that conversation where hey i just saw this play what are your thoughts and if they have a different thought that's great that means we I, I have something to learn either they don't have information that i have or i don't have information that they have and either way we can align around that discrepancy and move forward from there so having the conversation honestly with the intent of like i'm not going to be agenda driven or like, i'm not saying this thing needs nerfs i want to understand why this thing is the way it is um because again people at right like the designers they're very intelligent logical well-intentioned people um, so if you strongly disagree with something they're doing, it's not because they're being malicious. It's because uh, you two are working off of different information. Um, so finding where those differences are is the best approach to uh, either enacting change because you teach them something new or understand or adjusting your train of thought or your um, perceptions because, you know, you've learned something that you didn't consider before, which is valuable in its own right. Very well said. Um, okay, I actually forgot about these talking points, and I want to keep my, uh, at least the perception of this podcast as somewhat educational for people trying to get into game dev. So I wanted to get to these main takeaways before we wrap up, because we don't have a lot of time left. Um, these are questions that I've started asking pretty much every guest that comes on the show, and I think we started this after your last episode, so I don't think I got to ask you these questions. So I wanted to know uh, your answers to these, and hopefully... Uh, provide some value to the people who are getting, uh, watching the show or listening to the show. So what are some skills and habits to focus on that you recommend people wanting a similar role to what you do focus on? Uh, so a lot of what I do is having positive interactions with people. And a lot of that is like, there's going to be some psychology to it on how to create safe environments, uh, how to voice opinions effectively, how to all that stuff. Um, a saying that I really like that I am going to say now is uh, if you are leading a team and things go well, you use we. If you are leading a team and things go poorly, you use I. Um, basically, what that boils down to is sharing in success and taking ownership for mistakes. Uh, ultimately, I am accountable for the output of my team. Um, if someone on my team messes up, uh, it's it's not that they messed up, it's that I didn't do a good enough job providing them with the resources to succeed or something like that. Similarly, if we do well, that wasn't me. I, I work with a lot of awesome people. They they crushed it and uh, I wanna celebrate that with them. Um, that is probably the single most powerful like saying or mentality I could convey to people who want to be leaders of successful teams yeah i think i think that a lot of people um game dev has a very troubled past of, of leaders not adopting that philosophy so i think if if you want to be a leader in game dev even if it's a manager on a team um i think that's that's something that would definitely help hopefully change the perception of, of this industry um and hopefully shift towards a healthier and less toxic environment um, so what do you, what is something that you wish that you had known when you were back in college going into where you are now? Major doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so, you know, I didn't really go into it this episode, but, uh, I did major in physics, 
Um, and I worked as a temp at various places. And one of the things I learned is all these people who had all these different majors didn't end up using it. Don't get me wrong. Some some jobs or industries or whatever, your major is very relevant. Um, but you are not defined by your major. And uh, you can find transferable skills within your experience that apply to something you do care about. That's that's a very common sentiment on the show that I've seen um, that that a lot of the traditional education doesn't necessarily translate into what you can do in game dev. So I'd love to hear. I always love hearing that. Um, if if you weren't working at Riot and you were working on League of Legends or in game dev in general, what do you think your dream job would be? It would still be games and if it's not in game dev i would probably be uh streaming full-time would be <laughs> my go-to i i love playing and talking about games um it's great that i get to do that professionally uh i think i would also be well suited for doing that um you know with a focus on speaking to a community um would be my answer there I love talking about games too. I, I actually love it so much that I started a podcast about it. <laughs> shocking, shocking. Very, very fun. Um, okay. And lastly, there's no limit to this. So name as many as you'd like. Who are some people that you work with or in your life that inspire and motivate you? And that can actually extend to people outside your life too. People that you were motivated by um, on a professional sense. Yeah. Um, I've had... A few really good managers. I still I, I love my current manager. Uh, he's great. Um, I don't want to name names in general because I don't want to feel like I'm missing anyone. Um, but I have been very fortunate to have people invest in their time and effort in me, um, believing in my potential and uh, really, really helping me push me out of my comfort zone so that I would grow and continue to make things around me as best as I can. Um, I've kind of taken that mentality and I, I still have a lot of room to improve, but I want to further push my direct report or the people who I manage uh, similarly. I think it was so impactful to me that I want to be able to share that with as many people as I can. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've known this for a while is that I'm not the most ambitious of people out there. I know that um, some of my current direct reports or people I manage, um, they'll outpace me. There's no doubt in my mind. It's like, there's a good chance that 10 years from now, uh, they'll be my boss. And I think that's just the coolest thing ever. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful and inspired by um, having people really look out for me and advocate for me in helping me, um, be the best version of me that I can be. That was a bit too cheesy, but I mean it. <laughs> That's great. No, I, I love that answer. Um, and I may actually reshape that question based off that answer because I really like how you answered that. Um, I want to say to people listening to the podcast, if you are really interested in some more stuff that that Afic did getting into game dev, uh, go back and listen to DevDav episode 25. I looked it up. That was the episode you were on previously. We go really in-depth into his career before Riot, what he was doing, his his motivations to get into game dev in general, all sorts of stuff. There's, I'm sure, a lot of great content in there. Uh, how bad it could it be? <laughs> it's only two years ago. Um, yeah, I, I want to thank Adam for coming on the show. Um, 
it was really great to have you on again. I really liked sort of this uh, less traditional format that we did. I like talking more about how the team works and getting into more of the nitty gritty on some of the the things that we may not cover in a regular traditional episode of Dev Dime. So I want to thank you on that. Uh, you can check out AFIC on Twitter at Riot AFIC. Follow him there. And if you want to watch his Twitch, it's at twitch.tv slash actually AFIC. Um, for when he gets back into streaming, I'm sure. When I finish God of War, yeah. When he finishes God of War. <laughs> a lot of great content there. Um, just watch personally something that I, I love about the stream is just learning how to read the data that, that is available to the public. Like champ- sites like lolwittics.com. I've learned so much in how to actually be informed positively by that data and not just looking at win rate of items or, or bills or champions and, and making blind assumptions based off that. Um, so that's just one of the key takeaways that I liked from that stream. So if that sounds interesting to you, go check them out there. And if you liked dev dive, you can watch live. Uh, there's no consistent day because it turns out scheduling uh, streams around two people's schedules who are very busy is difficult. But if you follow the Twitter at Dev Dive Podcast. I should announce when episodes are going live. And if you don't want to watch live, you can always watch on our YouTube, youtube.com slash Nighthawk20,000. We upload the VODs there pretty much immediately after the show. And if you don't want to watch, you can always listen on all major audio platforms. Dev Dive with the blue logo. That's us. Um, so go ahead and listen. And there's 32 other... Uh, I don't want to say all of them are great. There's There's a large amount of other great episodes out there from people of all disciplines, all walks of life. A lot of great content out there. They're all organized by the person's role and the game that they're working on. So if you see something that interests you there, go ahead and check them out. And if you want to give us a rating uh, on those platforms, maybe it makes more people discover the show. I do this purely out of my own self-interest. I I just enjoy talking to people, interesting people. So there's no financial incentive for me to do this. So it's not going to be the end of the world if, if that doesn't happen. Um, but if you want to learn more about the podcast and see maybe what's coming up, you can join our discord, discord.gg slash nighthawk, and you'll learn more about dev dive and maybe see some funny stuff happen in there. And as always, I want to thank all of you for listening, watching and tuning in and just keeping up with the show, even though it's had a very inconsistent and, and, uh, interesting past. Thank you so much all. Bye-bye.